Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you with me. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, coming to hang out, coming to join in this uh, meeting of of patriots, like-minded individuals. We are going to dive into the news of the day and cover stuff that I doubt you'll hear anyone else uh, get into. And we'll certainly talk about things in a way you won't hear anyone else talk about or in a way you won't hear from them. So there we go. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, quick roadmap to the show. We will get into uh, the latest on FISA abuse because we have to. Um, can't can't skip over that one. The Media, uh, just a, a White House under siege right now because of the Rob Porter stuff, which I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not play the media game here because they're running stories on this that really have nothing to do even with Rob Porter. They just want to keep the name and the story going as much as they can. But we'll discuss what's going on to some, at some level, at least, in the, in the White House right now and surrounded with this media frenzy. Uh, also... The DACA negotiations are underway right now, so deferred action for childhood arrivals. Will there be an immigration deal? I think the answer is no, but we still should talk about it. Because why Why do I think the answer is no? Therein, therein lies the, uh, the payoff. Therein lies the important stuff on a policy level. Uh, also, I think I mentioned infrastructure. But then some national security, somehow some stuff that's getting just left on the cutting room floor by most of the networks. And this we'll get to later, probably back half of the show. I'm not exactly sure where. But how many of you knew that uh, there was a U.S. airstrike that killed a whole bunch of Russians recently? So U.S. planes blew up a bunch of Russian nationals in Syria. U.S. fighters. Do, do we want to get into this? I think we do. Rather important what's going on right now in Syria because we have U.S. forces in harm's way. And we have a cauldron of multiple conflicts playing out in what I like to refer to, I, I believe is it's an accurate term for it, the Second Syrian Civil War. Uh, pardon the alliteration, but that is what's going on there. So uh, we will discuss that, to be sure. A lot going on in Syria and uh, on the anti-ISIS, well, Beyond the anti-ISIS fight, really, that's that's the main thrust of it. We'll get into that, though. But, we, yeah, we have not only a U.S. US uh, fighter planes taking out some Russians on the ground. Now, there are Russian contractors. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about the details of it, right? I'm, I don't want to lead you astray, make you think that this is, it, was an inten- it wasn't intentional. We weren't trying to hit Russian. But it just goes to show you what's at stake here. Russia's still got a whole lot of nukes. Uh, this is not something that we want to play around with. 
And they know it and we know it. We're like, oh, gosh, there were Russians there. We'll get into this. And also an Iranian drone shot down in Israeli airspace. That's a a big drone. Not like a not a drone that you're going to see flying around the beach. Kid throws up in the air. A big drone, military drone. We'll talk about that as well. That'll be coming up later on in the show. Oh, and also maybe some North Korea fallout. The short version is everyone who knows anything agrees with me that the media's coverage over the weekend of what was going on at the Winter Olympics was appalling. Appalling. The speed with which the mainstream media will find an excuse to favorably compare literally the worst government on the planet right now to our current government in this country it is it is jaw dropping and it is disgraceful and it's something that we should not forget anytime soon oh and there's some other the intel chiefs were speaking today about worldwide threats you know for hours and hours there were some interesting things that came out of that though and i will address that but first before we get into that uh, we have more on the you could call it really the fallout of the uh, Susan Rice email that I discussed with you yesterday. I've had people asking me all day today, um, people in the, in the business. I was over at Fox. People over there were asking me in the green room, well, what do you think about this? It seems so clumsy. So this is what you have to remember when you're talking about Clinton's and Obama era officials. Don't give them the benefit of thinking, well, you know they have no scruples, so just put that aside for a second. But don't give them the benefit of, well, that's so clumsy, there's no way they would do that. Remember, when we're talking about the Clinton-Obama era of governance in this country, the eight years of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and other top officials around them running the show, you had things like, the Secretary of State violating classified protocols over a hundred times with the homebrew server. You know all about that. You had the sitting attorney general meet with Bill Clinton, the wife of the highest profile political target of a criminal investigation in the country, probably ever in some ways, right? Or, you know, for an election year at least. Um, that's rather important and rather clumsy stuff, isn't it? So is it really be? Oh, and Susan Rice, as I was pointing out to people today at Fox, was also she was I can't remember if she was U.S. ambassador to the United Nations or national security advisor at the time. But after I think national security advisor after Benghazi, she was the one who went on TV and said. That it was a peaceful, you know, it was a peaceful protest that turned into something else. She was the first one who went out there on the Sunday shows and lied about Benghazi. There was no way we weren't going to figure that out. And thankfully, we've had Tonto and other guys come forward to tell us really what happened there, although they're still under some restrictions about what they can talk about. But so so you can't take this. Oh, she wouldn't do something that's so obvious as write herself a note that says it was all done by the book. Oh, yeah. Obama didn't want anything Nothing bad to happen to to Trump with the Russia collusion stuff. Just let that go the way it's going. No interference at all. Just want to make sure, you know, note the time, note the email, no interference at all. You say, oh, Buck, that's not, this isn't slick. It's too obvious to be effective. And I would respond to you if you said that. And I had to respond to some people today. meeting Meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac? You're the attorney general. There's press there. Is that obvious? 
Remember who you are dealing with. When we are talking about whether you want to call it the swamp, the Obama era deep state, all these different forces working against the Trump administration and the Trump campaign before that, they were drunk with their own power and they were certain that they weren't going to get caught. And when people are arrogant, like the former Obama officials we're talking about here were, clearly, Comey, McCabe, you know, Strzok. I mean, this guy, the FBI guy, Strzok, yeah, he was, he was a senior FBI person, by the way. He's not just some guy who's, you know, kicking indoors, checking to see if college kids are counterfeiting with the copy machine or something. I mean, he actually, although I think that would technically be a Secret Service operation, but maybe that's FBI now. Point is, he was a senior guy, and he was operating with terrible personal operational security because he didn't think he was going to get caught. It wasn't going to be a big deal. So Susan Rice writing herself an email that's basically an attempt to give the media talking points should they should they need a, a trail of crumbs left for them to find this, right? I mean, should they should this ever actually come out? It's obvious, but so much of what they did is obvious. It's sloppy, but so much of what Hillary, hello, and all the rest of them did was sloppy. Don't think that we're dealing with criminal masterminds here. We are not. We are absolutely not. They've had the media covering for them all along, and look, Hillary gets away with a lot even when she's caught. You also have to factor that into the thinking of these officials. And I've been telling you that all along, even with the FISA abuse that is coming out that's being unearthed as we go forward, if the worst case scenario was exposed here beyond any doubt, right, that there was, and I, I think we're there, but it's not 100% provable yet, but it certainly seems to be the preponderance of the evidence, that there was this political targeting, Carter Page was an excuse to look at all the different Trump people. and if, if we get them dead to rights on that, don't think that the Democrat Party and the left is going to turn on anybody who's implicated in that and say, oh, gosh, what have you done? No, they're going to say, well, you know what? They saw the danger of Trumpism, who, you know, is worse than Kim Jong-un. They saw the danger of Trumpism and they did whatever was necessary. They're heroes of our democracy. But it's a republic. But you know what I mean? That's what will happen. So know how the other side thinks and operates. Very important. You know, I don't want to say know the enemy because I'm not enemy. They're fellow Americans, but they've made some very, very poor decisions and they've done some very bad things. Uh, You have to know the other side. And that's why I'm not willing to dismiss out of hand that Susan Rice would write this. Look, it, it just it's suspicious. There's nothing illegal about her writing this email to herself. There's nothing that I can say about it other than, well, that looks weird. And now, given everything else we know, you've got to say to yourself, huh, huh, yeah, buy the book, everything, just buy the book. Last day, last day before she no longer is in a position to create a record, right, to create a paper trail. Hmm. Just seems a bit strange to me. And this is the same person who went on TV. This is the same senior Obama administration official who went on TV and just blatantly, bald-faced lied to the American people about Benghazi and was promoted for it from the role of U.S. ambassador to the United Nations to national security advisor. Promoted by the Obama administration. Remember that, folks. Her loyalty to Obama over country was 
rewarded. So you don't you are we, someone's really going to tell me this beyond her? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, we also have some more on the Carter page situation here very very important stuff our friend andy mccarthy's been out there writing about this and doing some great work on it it's just so interesting the more we know about fisa targeting and and what's going on here the worse it looks i i keep waiting for them to provide us with some information you know democrats and adam schiff and all this to give us the data that counters the overall argument and makes all this not look just so fetid so repulsive i haven't seen it yet In fact, the more information we get, the more clear it is to me that very, very disturbing stuff went on here. Uh, Illegal? I think so. Unethical? I know so. We will get into that and more after the break. Stay with me. What our assessment is as of the present is in fact what it began spontaneously in Benghazi uh, as a reaction to what had transpired some hours earlier in Cairo, where, of course, as you know, uh, there was a violent protest outside of our embassy uh, sparked by this uh, hateful video. But you do not agree with him that this was something that had been plotted out several not, months we ago? We do not have information at present that leads us to conclude that this was premeditated or preplanned. Lying, lying to the American people there. Former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice on the Sunday shows right after Benghazi. I mean, days, days after Benghazi. Just lying, lying about it. Oh, yeah, it's about the video. Wasn't preplanned. As we know, because we eventually got access to some of the Hillary emails. You know, Hillary told Chelsea or Chelsea told Hillary. I forget who. Yeah, it was a terrorist attack. And that was the, the, the day of. She went on TV and said that, as you know, just uh, I'm I'm trying to make sure that we're evaluating these different figures, different people in the administration before this one who are who are now implicated in so much of the foul play, the political targeting, the abuse of FISA to get after Trump, which I'm going to get into in a moment here in some detail. But. Don't give them too much credit. Don't think that this is all they're all criminal masterminds and that they know exactly what they're doing and they never make a mistake. Right. No, they actually trust that the system is so corrupt and so favorable to them. Swamp dwellers, if you will, believe that the swamp has their back. And they are generally correct. They have been. Maybe up until now, we will see. But that's the operating assumption that they use is, oh, well, I'm I can do this thing. And even if I get caught, they'll they'll bail me out. The press will come to my press will come to my aid and the system. And as we see, we used to believe that it was the media and, you know, the, the media was always backing up the Democrats all the time and tilting the scales towards the progressive left in this country. Now we know that there are some very powerful elements within the fourth branch of government, so to speak, not really a branch, but the bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy that has taken much the same role. Um, so there you have it. Taking much the same role as what the media has done. They're just doing it from the role of the Department of Justice. 
they are doing it from the intelligence agencies, but they are trying to tilt the scales towards the left as well. It's very troubling to see that happening. So now a a bit on the, uh, so that's on the Susan Rice email. Look, maybe it's nothing. Maybe she just wrote a weird email to herself, but I just refuse to dismiss it out of hand because people tell me I should. Uh, I I don't like that. Carter Page. Uh, interesting piece up by Alex Pappas on Fox News, uh, foxnews.com, talking about the real implications of what it means that Carter Page was under FISA warrant. And also, you know, I, I know Andy McCarthy, and, we, and I just realized now we should have called. I didn't. We'll get Andy on tomorrow, maybe or later this week. Producer Mike, let's let's reach out, put out the Andy signal, uh, which we should work on what that sounds like or looks like, but. Here's the very important thing. One of the arguments you heard originally about the uh, one of the arguments that you heard um, when you were were talking about Carter Page and FISA warrants and all that stuff is that Carter Page was already on the FBI's radar and stopped, you know, stopped working for the Trump campaign at some point. So, you know, what was really taken into his what were his communications really like how much of this stuff was how much of the targeting uh would allow for people to get caught up in this and what this piece is saying is and what andy's been saying as well is that well if you if they're if you're under electronic surveillance as it turns out they have access to you know it's kind of like if they got if someone got access to your phone your cell phone uh, and they could hear every call you're making. Well, they also can see the calls that you've already made and who you've talked to and you know whatever else they're looking into. So now think about this. It's not just the dates in question, but there's also the very real possibility of being able to essentially go through Carter Page's digital footprint, so to speak, and look at whatever communications he had and whoever he was talking to and and pretty sure that you're going to see some members of the Trump campaign popping up and all that, right? There's been reporting on this already. We don't know because they're still keeping this stuff under wraps, but it certainly seems likely. It certainly seems like there is uh, a very high possibility of that. And it brings me back to another factor you have to keep in mind as we go along. Remember, this is a, this is a marathon, not a sprint, this whole Russia collusion thing. It's going to keep on... You know this, because we've been talking about this already. We're already at the point now where a lot of us would like to, you know, sit down, have some of those gel packs that runners, you know, when the gel, the things, the, the hydration thing, I've never had one, but I feel like you have to earn those. You know what I mean? You've got to run more than like the half mile I put down on the treadmill to have a little gel pack thing. But we've, we've done enough now where we feel like, all right, we've, whew, we've been there. We've earned a gel pack or two. And yet, I want you to keep in mind that what's real, what was really at stake here was the possibility. The reason they would do all this was that they could have found campaign-ending information on Trump. So they thought it was worth the risk and they wouldn't be caught. So that's motive, motive, motive. You have to remember motive in these discussions. Oh, yeah. And that also is why I can tell you Trump-Russia collusion? Come on. Nonsense. It's the worst plot ever. It doesn't even make sense. We'll get into uh, some more Russia stuff coming up in a minute.
When I lived through Watergate, because I was a candidate for the first time as, as the Nixon administration disintegrated, um, things start to unravel, and then one thing pulls another thing, and then one morning you're in a space you never dreamed of because they just keep unraveling. And I think Susan Rice's memo is one more example of this thing gradually unraveling. She's obviously trying to rewrite history. She's trying to make it look as if something happened that didn't happen. She writes the memo after Barack Obama is out of office, after she no longer had a job. My suspicion, and I think Senator Graham shares this as well, is that they learned something between right. January 5th and January 20th, which caused them to want to change the narrative about this meeting. Right. None of us knew about, uh, about the meeting. I'm with the judge, Newt. I'm with him. The judge, Newt and Buck. Sounds like, sounds like a pretty awesome bluegrass band, actually. The, the, the judge, Newt and Buck. I like it. Uh, yeah, it was like, like the, the A-team of political analysis. Um, those dudes both have good hair, too. You know what I mean? So we, we got a lot of good hair going on. We, we could do something. I should, hey, judge, Newt, we should talk. Anyway, they're they're correct though that the whole email thing strikes all of us as as quite weird. They they said that I guess last night on Fox. I said it here on the show. I mean, did I say it first? Probably, of course. But nonetheless, we all agree on this one, which is uh, an important fact of all this. But today you had the uh, various intel chiefs giving these, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I don't, I don't think you need me to give a big overview. Of, of all the biggest global threats. I mean, maybe that would be like a separate podcast I do some other time. But you understand a lot of the threats that are out there. You know, we, we talk about it here on the show. And, uh, you know, yeah, North Korea, Iran, Islamic State, jihadists, Russia, cybercrime. There you go, right? That, that's pretty much the, the, the rundown on a lot of what today's... It wasn't even a grilling. It was mostly just being... Uh, Ask questions. The intel chiefs of the different agencies ask, being uh, answered, answering some questions. But there were some interesting things. There were some moments. First of all, there's the there's a story that I did not. I don't think I spoke about here on the show. I read it in the New York Times, and I was aware of it, but I just didn't have the time to uh, to get to it here. And it had to do with this. Maybe I mentioned it. I can't remember. Had to do with a an operation where the CIA reportedly, according to the New York Times, tried to buy uh, info hacking tools. And also with that, this shady guy offered damaging information on Trump. So that that actually, I think, got a lot more attention than the uh, the hacking tools com- component of the story. But it's a story that was printed out there. And I was looking at this and it just it, it smelled funky. There was something about it that smelled a little funky to me. I just like I read the story. I said, mm, hundred hundred grand, and the guy just gets to walk away, and that's just the way this was." And mm, seems strange to me. Well, here's the CIA director today addressing the specific story. Reporting on this matter has been atrocious. It's been ridiculous, totally inaccurate. Uh, in in our view, the uh, the suggestion the CIA was swindled, swindled is false. The people who were swindled were James Rison and Matt Rosenberg, the authors of those two pieces. Indeed, it's our, uh, it's our view that the same two people who were fo- uh, proffering phony uh, information to the United States government proffered that same phony information to these two reporters. So I just want to be clear here. You got the CIA director saying, basically, 
that the New York Times story was fake news. I mean, he didn't use the words fake news, but he's saying fake news. So there was that. Uh, kind of a, a fun little moment there. But then there's a, a, a more... So that's that New York Times story. We can kind of just move past it, right? I And people say, oh, Buck, do you believe... Well, I didn't... The story didn't ring true to me originally. So, and it, it strikes me as unusual that the, uh, that the agency director would speak to a story in that way and so definitively. So, yeah, I, I don't, I'm, not buying the, I'm not buying that New York Times piece. I'm not, uh, smell test is funky. You know, it's past the expiration date for sure. And there's that. Okay, now, one other thing that came up in the hearing that I thought was, uh, was kind of interesting, and, and CNN was running with it for obvious reasons. The notion that uh, that well, Russia is still trying to meddle in our elections. That Russia is going to find a way to get involved in our uh, in our upcoming midterm elections. Now, I'm sure that's probably true, but as I have explained to you, and I was doing this way well in advance of when. Russia Today, the cable news channel that the Kremlin pays for in English language with, you know, appealing, telegenic, English-speaking American anchors here in this country and has been doing it for over a decade. Now it has to register as a foreign agent. But I've been saying to you on the show for over a year, I think they registered this past fall, that that's just straight up propaganda network that's been operating for a long time. A lot of people see it. And Adam Schiff went on it. Other senior government officials went on it. Ow. So, yeah, Russia's trying to influence us in a lot of ways. And Russian trolls and uh, sock puppets, which is what people refer to fake accounts that are, um, you know, that, that pretend to be one thing, they're actually another. At least that's what they call them on Facebook. I think they call them that on Twitter, too. They're going to be making more of those. And, and their goal, from the, the best analysis I've read of the Russian attempts to involve themselves in our elections and everything else, is just to create chaos and distrust in the system, which is really the Russian version of extending a solitary digit from the hand to the United States electoral process. That's what they're trying to do. They are, they are hoping to just make things difficult. And I think it's interesting that that gets kind of pushed aside and the narrative is, oh, they're just trying to help Trump, right, because of all the Russia collusion nonsense that we've heard. But we're hearing these stories about how they're going to get involved in midterm elections. CNN and others were even taking it further today. It's actually on the screen right now. Breaking news. Intel chiefs say Trump has not specifically directed them to confront Russian meddling. Now, for the CNN audience, they see that. They go, oh, see, Trump is basically a puppet of the Kremlin. This is crazy. He's not specifically directing them to. They get all worked up about this. And note, note that not specifically. So maybe he said some stuff about it, but I, I want to take this a little further, though. I, I want to work on this for just a moment here. What the heck are we supposed to do about the kind of meddling in the elections that the Russians are either actively engaged in now or will be engaged in the midterms? Are we going to block off the Internet? Are we going to th- we already have sanctions on Russia? Um, although I know there's recently been some sanctions that we're not enforcing. But the point is, we, you know, we've tried that. Didn't do anything. So what's the what's the so what? Russia, by the way, sanctions on Russia. This would be like having sanctions on China. It doesn't it, it does not have the intended effect. 
it's too large and too powerful and important a country for us to be able to just easily economically isolate it and bend it to our will. I would note that much smaller, much less powerful and important countries have defied sanctions for a long time. The history of sanctions working, not so good. Not a so good. So, we're being told that they're not specifically, that, that Trump has not specifically directed them to confront Russian meddling, and I just push this to the next, the next phase of the discussion. How? What does that even mean? What was he supposed? This reminds me of whenever Trump had had his, his early meetings with Putin. They're like, did you see that? He shook Putin's hand and didn't even spit in his face. What kind of American is he? I mean, they're, what do they think he was going to do? You know, Russia is not what it used to be. This isn't the Soviet era, but Russia is still a large, important country with a very serious military and a whole lot of nuclear weapons. Like, is, they always say that Trump is irresponsible on national security and foreign policy. Oh, Trump, he's doing this wrong. He's doing that wrong. And then there is no level of belligerence that at least rhetorically speaking, they will back away from when it comes to our dealings with Russia. They, they have become brainwashed to think that we, we have to be on this trajectory of complete and total opposition and rage against Russia as a government all the time. Very dangerous, very bad thing. And as I mentioned before, we just had a, an incident in Syria where we blew up with our airplanes, airstrike. I'll give you the specifics later. You'll have to stay with me through the show. But blew up a, at least four, I think, may have been a few dozen Russians. So we need to keep Russian relations open and constructive, and things are getting a little tense anyway. What would it mean to confront Russian meddling in the election? We're going. Let me tell you how this could go, folks. And you already know this, but let's just walk through it together, shall we? So we have Rex Tillerson, who I think could play the crusty but uh, very resilient sheriff in any Western pretty much ever filmed. You got Rex Tillerson and he's going to what? He's going to sit down and speak to Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. He's going to call him on a secure line or something and say, hey, knock off. That meddling. You know what, Lavrov, or we'll say one of two things, whatever the Russian counterpart is, he'll say one of two things. We're not doing that. Or you're absolutely right. We'll we'll crack down on it. And no matter what the response is, it'll have no effect. Because how are you going to stop this? Folks, we've seen breathless news reports about how there are like fake Facebook accounts out there and fake Twitter accounts that are pushing hoax news stories as if that's a dire national security threat to us. People believe dumb news all the time. We just had a CIA director tell us that the New York Times ran a major story that was completely false and the reporters writing it got duped. So what is confronting Russian meddling supposed to mean? And the answer is nothing. It's just feeding into more of the hysteria over this. I I assure you, neither you, none of you listening in any other country, nor me, have our political inclinations, our votes, or any of that influenced by Russia in the least. It's really hard to get me to change my mind. I'm sure a lot of you are very stubborn too, by the way. Just taking a guess. But there's nothing that Russia's going to do that's going to make me go one way or the other, and that's the the kind of meddling we're talking about. Sure, if they hack into our voting system, which they can't really do because there's a they're separate, there's a, an air gap with voting systems, but you know, if, if they tried some of this stuff, all right, you know, we'll get mad at them. We'll tell them don't do that. 
maybe we'll impose more sanctions. But preemptively, we're talking about well, what are we going to do? We're going to tell them, you know, you, you, you can't have people making fake Twitter accounts that are saying mean stuff about Hillary still. I mean, this is just like I said, these people have lost their minds. They have no idea what they're talking about. Major news organizations, no idea what they're talking about at all. They just know Russia, scary, Trump, Russia. I mean, that's it. Childish, but it's dangerous. Rolling into a quick break. We got a lot more. I I think we'll talk immigration and infrastructure in the next hour. Probably just immigration. I don't know. It's a little early for me on on infrastructure. Um, Maybe budgets. Yeah, that's the ticket. Budgets. Probably get into that, too. We'll be back. Yes, we, we have seen Russian uh, activity and intentions to have an impact on the next election cycle here. I agree with Director Pompeo's assessment about the likelihood of the 2018 uh, occurrence as well. This is not going to change or stop. Yes, it is not going to change, nor is it going to stop. Uh, we have not seen any evidence of any significant change from last year. I agree with Director Pompeo. As do I. So, yeah, you got a whole bunch of intel chiefs today sitting in front of Congress who are saying exactly that. It's going to continue. It's not going to stop. And I don't know how the takeaway from that is. But but Trump, but Trump, he didn't do enough. What, what is Trump going to do? I mean, uh, but they, they, like I was saying, they just they just want to whine about him. I guess it's, it's all just the, the journalists. It's really all just one version of when. Remember that woman, the the resist woman, just like screamed in the air and went just viral because it was such a horrifying shriek. There was a woman who like she like looked in the sky and yelled at like one of the women at one of the women's marches or something. You know, hashtag resist, right? Journalists all secretly just want to do that all the time, and it really informs a lot of their coverage, or I should say, it influences a lot of their coverage. Uh, we also had uh, Kamala Harris, who was uh, asking the following. If the president asked you tomorrow to um, hand over to him additional sensitive FBI information on the investigations into his campaign, would you give it to him? Uh, I, I'm not going to discuss the uh, investigation. Do you believe the president should recuse himself from reviewing and declassifying sensitive FBI material related to this investigation? I think recusal questions are something I would encourage the president to talk to the White House counsel about. Uh, guess what? It, it, not the FBI director's call. It's, it's funny that, you know, Senator Harris, you know, look, she's she's grandstanding and doing what what. Both parties tend to do in these hearings, which is just make their point and pretend they're asking a question. But yeah, yeah. So, do you think the president, who is the ultimate declassification authority, he's the commander in chief and the head of the executive branch of the government, you think he should just not be allowed to determine whether the American people see anything about Russia? You know, let's just tie his hands behind his back, the attorney general's uh, attorney general's hands behind his back. I mean, we got a special counsel. You know, we can let loose. Let loose the mad dogs of investigation, so to speak, right? Just let them run around, do whatever they want. But, yeah, should Trump recuse himself from it? Oh, it's just, that's not going to happen. I also saw that there was a breaking Fox News uh, story a few moments ago that Trump's outside legal counsel is making the case that Trump should not speak to Mueller. And I hope all of Trump's counsel is making that case because that is the correct answer. There is no other answer. 
And I'm glad that if nothing else, if I can provide you with with some lasting advice from listening to this show, one is wear comfortable shoes whenever you can. Two is don't ever talk to the FBI. When it's time for you to talk to the FBI, you'll know, right? If you've got your lawyer present or whatever, and hopefully none of you will ever have to deal with this. Or if, you know, if you've been the victim of a crime or something, right? But you'll know. But as a general rule, never talk to the FBI. It's nothing against FBI agents. They just... They have a tremendous tool at their disposal, which is the moment you say something that is material and false, they have you. You are, you are now a, a criminal awaiting trial, um, which I, I actually think that that law should be revisited. Uh, I think that testimony under oath versus testimony given in the, on the spur of the moment, for example, especially when it's sprung on somebody who doesn't even know they're a suspect. It, you know, I, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be admissible. I'm just saying that that, that you're going to go to prison for five years just based on that. It seems a little... It's a little harsh, a little harsh, uh, but Trump should not speak to them. That would be a, a mistake. I'm also going to just go out there and say it. You know, I'm a little disappointed we don't have the memo yet. I thought we'd have the Democrat memo, and I, I think it's going to be pretty lame. I don't think it's going to open up much in the way of new information. I don't think it's going to kick open this investigation and, and tell us a lot. I do believe the Democrats have been playing games with the classified information they've put into it, as I knew they would, as I said they would, right? But in the meantime, I kind of want to see what the Democrats have up their sleeve on this one. We can get a really good sense as to whether or not, and I actually kind of wish that Trump had just said, you know what, fine, if this is what Democrats want to put out there, he's actually just being responsible about this. So it must have been really bad information, I would know. I mean, really sensitive, classified information the Democrats put in their memo. Um, but then I wonder why the I guess the Republicans only voted to only voted to send it to the White House, knowing that Trump would have to say, no, 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 we can't do that. The whole thing strikes me as a little odd, but I, I was hoping we had the Democrat memo this week. I don't know. It's looking like it's going to get. Held. Yeah, it's going to get held past. Darn it. I like I like pulling apart the memos. I've, I got all kinds of stuff going. Um, I think next hour we're going to talk. Well, North Korea, some updates on that and the press coverage of that. Also, immigration, because, you know, I like talk about immigration and then. What's going on in Syria? Why are U.S. planes dropping bombs on Russians? We'll get there. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for staying. Thank you for joining, depending on uh, what part of the day we, we find you. Uh, so there's some very important policy matters I want to talk to you about. Some things that we will all, I think, agree matter to our future. We even have some very troubling national security situations developing overseas, and there's just much to discuss, much going on today. It was a White House press conference, however, and it sounded a whole lot like yesterday's White House press conference on a day where we have the Senate hammering out, well, saying they're going to hammer out a deal on immigration. I think there will be no deal because Democrats will not want a deal. They are unserious in their negotiations over immigration. Uh, They want amnesty. That's all they want, and that's what they're waiting for, and they expect to get it. That's it. There's nothing else for them. There's nothing else. Maybe more immigration courts to process the amnesty. That's all. We'll talk about where that stands right now and 
what we can expect from that back and forth. And then also more on infrastructure today. So looks like the Trump administration will be going forward on uh, trying to improve roads and bridges and all the other things that we've been told about. Now, they'll be trying to deregulate much of the uh, permitting processes for things like bridges and roads. It's still early. we got to see where all that's going. Uh, but instead of even spending time on that at the White House press conference, there was only one subject that it seemed was getting any attention from the assembled journalists. There was only one subject that they wanted to ask about because it is clearly the most critical issue right now the government is handling that faces 320 million Americans and then, of course, has ripples all around the world because of American influence on the planet. Uh, the one issue was, uh, well, was, was this issue. One full week into the domestic abuse scandal involving now former White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter. Uh, what we knew when about Rob Porter. Who's telling the truth? Uh, the allegations about Rob Porter. Not House. that you did receive paperwork, Rob Porter, rather, to stay here without permanent security clearance. The initial response from the White House was to prop up Porter and stand by Porter. Now, we're into a few days of this. And they were asking the intel chiefs when they were assembled today in front of Congress. They were asking them about it. They want to know the timeline with Christopher Ray. They're going into background investigation discussions. And now you're getting a lot of a lot of very, uh, very huffy, very agitated journalists out there who are saying, oh, somebody with an interim clearance should not be allowed to handle sensitive information. Now they're all security clearance experts. They're not, but. This is just one way they keep the story in the headlines. They want to talk about the clearance process. Uh, here, here's I, I feel inclined to talk about it only insofar as I want to give you not the not the, not that there's the other side of it. There's just additional information that I think is worth noting as we go through this. The guy's already been fired. He's already been uh, publicly shamed, as I think he should be, because you've got. Two ex-wives and I think an ex-girlfriend now, right, as well? Wasn't that also? So you've got three women who have come forward and provided evidence and on the record and give interviews. Uh, Yeah, he had to go. But you'll notice they're beating up the White House for things like saying that they initially, you know, they initially defended him. What's the, let's just do a little thought experiment. What's the alternative? That anytime anyone makes an allegation against any government official, especially anybody tied to this White House, they're just gone? Fired. They've somehow turned even a a a pause in the name of due process, just a pause, not even uh, of actual due process into complicity with domestic violence. That's what the media narrative right now is all about. They have managed to make it. Uh, they're managing to create a an effective propaganda here whereby if you don't. Automatically and, and immediately. Throw the person that is accused to the wolves. You are complicit in their and their wrongdoing and in their crimes. Uh, that's an unfair standard to hold any organization to, including the White House. So that's one part of the objection that they have. And I think that they're being clearly they're they're being unfair. Or they're being disingenuous about that. And there's the other component of it, which is the security clearance. Did this come up in his background? Now, those of you who have ever gotten a clearance, as I have. 
gone through that process, and especially for a high-level clearance, a TS, uh, you you have to open up a lot of your life to people who are government investigators, and it's all, I would note, uh, un- effectively under penalty of perjury, all the information you're giving them. So it can be a bit on the stressful side. And they can ask people all kinds of questions. Um, I can't get into what was fair game when I joined the agency because we don't talk about that. But I can just tell you that pretty much what the agency wants to make fair game is what in their background investigation process. I mean, they, they can dig deep. And if they find people, and this is true government-wide now for security clearance processes, if they find people that dislike you and say nasty stuff about you, is that enough to stop you from getting the job? Should you be banned from, especially in the case of, say, uh, Intel community or, uh, well, military, you get a clearance too, uh, depending on your job, people that work in the White House. You're not allowed to serve now because someone said nasty stuff about you? No, they have to verify. Right? They have to, And that's what they call the adjudication process, where they look at all the different assembled bits of data in your background and they come to a... They come to uh, some some kind of a uh, conclusion about it, and they make a determination. Do you get a clearance or not? And I would note that I've had friends who were denied clearances based on what they told me. And I don't know, right? I didn't get to see their file, but denied clearances for some stuff that you'd be like, whoa, really? You get denied a clearance for that? It's not always the most uh, clear-cut standard. The adjudication process is behind closed doors, for good reason. And it can be a little bit of a mess. You can imagine the government is compiling a dossier on each individual who's going to get a clearance. Think of it that way. It's a dossier, right? They're pulling together all the stuff about you, all of your financials and everything they can. And there are a lot of government employees with clearances. So do I think it is possible? It is It is feasible? It is likely that Rob Porter... You know, the, the, the FBI or whomever, I don't know who was doing his background clearance specifically. There's different government bodies and agencies that get involved. But the government investigators found evidence that he was a wife beater. Yeah, I think they probably did. And I think it is also clear they didn't act on it right away because they needed to compile the file for adjudication. And did that maybe not get communicated to the White House in a timely enough fashion? Or did someone in the White House not act on it? It is possible. I think it wasn't communicated quickly. I, I don't know if somebody ref- didn't act on it in a way that they should have. Um, but that's the that's the only question that I see as being particularly or, or as being the, the one the media is pushing that is valid. This whole notion of like, oh, my gosh, he's such a national security threat. I mean, we didn't find out that Rob Porter was a Russian spy. We found out that he is a disgrace who hits women. Shouldn't be working in the White House, shouldn't have gotten the job. But it's not like he, you know, sold the nuclear secrets or something. And the way the press is, is trying to dig into the story and keep it alive more and keep talking about it and talking about it because it's all Trump is a misogynist. The Me Too movement is, is gaining strength all the time. Trump is the, as I said, called over at MSNBC the uh, commander in chief of rape culture. You know, what's? I remember at MSNBC, an analyst over there called Obama a a word he called them a word on air for it's you know a, a slang term for a, a part of male anatomy and he was banned from the air that analyst was banned from the air for weeks i forget how long he was suspended for a, a period of time for that 
But you can go on MSNBC and say that this president is the commander in chief of rape culture, and that's okay. In fact, you're celebrated for it. It's uh, it's pretty pretty uh, clear the the double standards that we're dealing with here. But uh, so in the Porter case, the notion that this is all about national security, I'm just seeing a lot of a lot of oh my gosh, the national security threats here. He was seeing classified information. Him seeing classified information has really nothing to do with him being an abuser. Meaning that 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 does not mean that he there, there's no classified information component of the story other than he's not an honorable person who should be who should be trusted with his role in the White House. But that's a different this is this is an ethical issue, not a national security issue is what I'm trying to to clarify. But the way the media talks about it, it's oh, my gosh, they just want to talk about clearance. I've never heard so much talk about security clearances in my life. And this from people who are saying that Hillary's hundred, you know, hundred plus classified emails were, was no big deal. That's a national security risk. That's actually classified information problem, right? So Rob Porter, jerk problem, you know, bad. And again, I mean, look, I know people can call and tell me, and I get it. He hasn't been proven guilty of anything uh, in a court of law. He's entitled to a legal presumption of innocence, but. If we're making assessments here, guys, I mean, both both of his ex-wives and, a, and an ex-girlfriend saying he, he hit them. Uh, and they have proof. Uh, I think that I, like, the White House made the right move getting rid of him. And that it wasn't fast enough for the press's liking is not uh, not enough for them, of course. Um, all right. I can see some lines are lighting up. Maybe we'll get into some of this if you have thoughts on it. I wasn't going to spend too much time on it. But then again, we talk about immigration a lot and. We'll spend some time uh, some time on Syria in the uh, third hour on the situation there. So we've got a we've got a lot more show coming, and maybe I'll, do you think this uh, producer Mike? What do we think about this story about uh, Office of Management and Budget saying that maybe people instead of getting food stamps should get a food box? So you get you see this? You get a yeah. I've got some I've got some thoughts on that. This could get. Uh, should get a little spicier than I anticipated, actually. I've got some thoughts on that whole situation that maybe I should share with you. Let's mix it up a little bit here. You know, everyone's, you know, blah, blah, Comey, blah, blah, immigration. Let's talk about food and national food policy and food stamps. I think that could actually be really, really interesting uh, usage of our time here on the show. All right. Time to go to a break. We'll be right back. All right, team, lines are lit. Let's get to some calls. We got Brian in St. Clairsville, Ohio. Brian, thank you for giving us a ring. Well, thank you very much, Buck. Good evening to you. Uh, hey, about your subject that you're talking about uh, with Ron Porter, and I personally would support uh, him to be completely innocent until proven guilty, and that it has to go through due process. And I say that wholeheartedly for the fact that I went through an abusive uh, marriage, uh, ended up being falsely arrested at one time, and uh, had to prove my innocence. Uh, her, she filed the police report uh, the day I was out of town, uh, out of state, actually, so I was able to prove my innocence on that one. And then uh, didn't marry for another 13 years, uh, married another gal, moved to Canada, uh, that didn't turn out good either. And then all of a sudden, both of them got together. And then the next thing I know, I'm facing the same charges, possible accusations up in uh, 
Canada and almost got tossed in a Canadian jail. And Can I just ask Brian, I mean, this is quite an ordeal. How did your ex-wives find each other to team up to try to try to mess you up? That's, well, that's like Jerry court, Springer stuff. Yeah, it is Jerry Springer stuff. Um, the court uh, did not, well, let's put it this way, she wouldn't have received custody of our child if she had told the truth. So she, ah, had okay. to disparage me. she had to disparage me in order to demean my character. Uh, in the end, three years later, I mean, my divorce lasted three years. In the end, the court looked at me and says, we're not giving her custody at all. You get full custody. So then when I moved to Canada, I took my son to Canada. And, of course, you know, everybody gets to know every, who everybody is and everything. And that's how it all kind of worked so, but out. But so you were so, you were exonerated, you're saying, Brian, despite being accused by two ex-wives of abuse. That's correct. That was correct. Wow. Uh, the first one done in the States, I had to prove it in court. Uh, luckily, in Canada, uh, I had already had all this information, so I just presented it, uh, you know, to the attorneys, and they, they worked it out. And, you know, the, the courts just dropped that point up there. But, uh, I, you know, they, people will talk. They will talk together. They will form things. One thing I've learned, I've had psychology uh, working in the medical field, and one thing I know, 75% of the people, doesn't matter if they're male or female, will lie at any time for any reason. Huh. Um, okay. Second of all, 20% will lie only when they're pushed in the corner and have to, you know, have a defense mechanism, and then they'll do it. And only about 5 or 7% of people really try to live their lives without lying. So, um, well, Brian, you know, we're part of the 5 or 7% here, my friend, right? So there we go. Amen. Amen, my I'll friend. Thank you for calling in. Thanks for sharing your stories, Brian. Shields high. Daniel in Missouri. Daniel, welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, what's going on, Buck? Shields high, brother. Shields high. Question. And I'm going to play, I guess, partial devil's, devil's advocate and maybe far right-wing nut conspiracy theorist. Since we're finding out all this corruption in the uh, higher echelons of the FBI, what's to say that during Mr. Porter's background check, both of his ex-wives were interviewed, told the interviewer about the physical and mental abuse, and he decided to bury it and say, okay, I'm not putting this in the report. You guys stay quiet, and we're going to tell you exactly when we want this to come out, just to ruin the man. Huh. Well, why would the background investigators... Well, look, I, I, I can tell you this, Daniel. I can't say that that didn't happen. So... You know, I, I, but it, it's, it's I. I was just throwing it out there because I think it may be plausible. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think guilty, it's. But I don't know. He needs to. He well, needs to be proven guilty. Here's what I would say, Daniel. I would say that's that's a highly unlikely scenario based on what I know and the way that the the average government employee goes about their job. However, I'm telling you that's highly unlikely. After spending a lot of time here on the radio, telling you that it is likely, in my opinion that the senior most figures of the FBI and the Department of Justice abuse one of the most powerful surveillance tools of the United States government to throw a presidential election. So, I mean, I got to keep an open mind, you know, I, 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 well, I, I can't I was, be dismissive. I was throwing it in there because Peter Strzok was involved with his interview process as well. So maybe he was the one that. Wait, the, Peter Strzok was involved was with, with, guys, with Rob Porter? Maybe he. 
Yeah, was didn't you say that earlier that he was he was one of the ones that was involved in interviewing him? No, I don't remember saying that. I didn't. I mean, I, if I did, I was mistaken. I think I don't. I don't think that's true. Although I don't know. Let me check. Why don't uh, producer Mike? Can you take a look and see if there's any any correlation or uh, not correlation? Fancy radio talk. Any connection between all that stuff? But Daniel, hey man, I, I look. I like the outside the box thinking and. You know, innocent until proven guilty is a legal term. It is also a concept though, that we should try to maintain in in most of yeah. our, our day to day as much yeah, as we can. It's the, it's the but it looks really bad. Okay, I I appreciate it, Daniel. Thank you very much for calling in. I would also say though, you know, it looks really bad with this guy Porter. All right. And I, I know there's the pressure of and see, look here, I've spent more time on this radio show than I intended to on the subject. But you guys get fired up about it. We got a lot of calls coming in on it, so. You know, I can't even take. We're, we're not going to take the next the next few calls because we got to move subjects. But the for for me, if you're accused of this and it's not it's not true, I just don't think you you step down and you allow that to be a a mark on your record. Um, and but I understand there's also the pressure of you can't drag the White House down with your fight on this. It's not fair to everything else that's going on. But this guy, I don't know. This, this guy, this guy Porter. The more I've looked at this Rob Porter guy, the more eh, doesn't doesn't look good for me. It doesn't look good for my opinion. Um, so there's that. Uh, we, a little more on North Korea. I think I want to talk to you about. Maybe we won't get into immigration today. Definitely talking Syria. Oh, and some Israel stuff coming up, including uh, Israel shooting down an Iranian drone in Israeli airspace. That's kind of a big deal because you know the Iranians uh, want to get nuclear weapons so that they can expand their power across the Middle East and also eventually destroy Israel. And so there's some issues there that we should uh, continue to keep an eye on. So we'll talk about that in the third hour as well as, uh, oh, Anglo-American heritage of our legal system. That is a thing that we know about. But some people think that that term is inherently racist. Oh, we'll talk about that in the third hour. You are not going to want to miss it. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So I want to talk to you about uh, the Office of Management and uh, Budget Director Mick Mulvaney saying that maybe instead of giving people food stamps, which is more properly termed the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP, give them a food box similar to the very popular and uh, quite excellent, from what I understand, uh, food service known as Blue Apron, where they send you the food to make a meal. Uh, before I get to that, though, I just would note that the there is breaking news coming from CNN, so I'm just telling you the source, take it or leave it, that Adam Schiff of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, the Democrat who is the face of the Democrat efforts in that committee, yeah, uh, he has now come out to say that there will be no revisions no revisions of the Democrat memo. Huh. Well, now you have now you have something of a standoff, don't you? If they if this reporting is accurate and that is, in fact, what happens, that the Democrats refuse to make any revisions to the memo. This then strikes me as showing us what the Democrat plan here was all along. that The memo was created so that it could not be released. 
so that then they can continue to fight in the public sphere by a whisper campaign and propaganda and talking points without providing any actual substantive information to back it up. Just, oh, we had so much more on Carter Page. We totes wanted to show you, but like, you know, couldn't do it. We had so much on Carter Page that would have absolutely justified the spying on an American citizen and therefore also the Trump campaign that went along with it. But, you know, those mean Republicans wouldn't let us show it to you. This is what they are trying to pull off, I think. We'll see. It's not yet done with, but that's been my sense of where this is going all along. Um, Now, with that, let's talk about food shopping for a second. So, if you're like me, you show up in the grocery store and you're like, all right, take me to the uh, the salad greens. Take me to the, uh, let me think, the uh, the chicken, no skin, no breading, certainly not fried. You know, just, just lean protein, veggies. Maybe if I'm feeling particularly saucy, allow myself a couple of apples. Uh, that's what I go in there with the intention of. And somehow I find myself you know, getting uh, guacamole and chips and uh, you can never have enough cheddar cheese, maybe some brie, some fried chicken nuggets. Uh, obviously need to throw in some uh, some honey mustard sauce, maybe a little horseradish sauce, too, in case I'm really going to party. You know, and, and that that's what, ends, and, you know, a couple of chocolate bars because you need a sweet treat and maybe some ice cream. Like, that's what ends up in my cart. And Miss Molly makes fun of me a little bit for it sometimes because I go, I go in there and I'm going to eat like a guy who uh, just can't wait to show off his six pack abs. But I leave like the guy who definitely does not have six pack abs. You know, I leave like a guy who enjoys, who enjoys his ribeyes, his uh, red meat and uh, ice cream, cheese, all the above. So I understand the, the, the struggle in the grocery store is a real thing. You know, it's a struggle to get the right foods. And also, there's a struggle to pay for it. Uh, I live near a Whole Foods here in New York City, and Whole Foods is uh, is a pricey place to shop for food. It's great; it's the closest grocery store to me. But I know it's sounding I'm sounding very very uh, bougie right now. But I, I swear I'm not. Uh, but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of very good stuff there, and food is expensive. I get it, right? But the government has now waded into the issue of making food choices for people, perhaps, which, as you can imagine, is going to get all kinds of political. And uh, I-, I think they're probably going to back off this. But before they do, let's just visit with what Mick Mulvaney, the director of the OMB, said about the SNAP program, better known as food stamps. SNAP. Uh, food stamps. Uh, a couple of changes there. We'll hit the highlights. Um, you may have heard about this already. The food box program, one of the most innovative things. Actually, I think it originated at the USDA. Uh, Secretary Purdue wanted to give it a chance. We thought it was a tremendous idea. So what we do is propose that for folks who are on food stamps, part, not all, part of their benefits come in the actual sort of, and I don't want to steal somebody's copyright, but a blue apron type program where you actually receive the food instead of receive the cash. Um, It it lowers the cost to us because we can buy prices at wholesale, whereas they have to buy it at retail. It also makes sure that they're getting nutritious food. Um, So we're pretty excited about that. 
So save the government money, give people food. That's the that's the plan here. That that's what he's trying to trying to get at. And according to the Washington Post, those foods would include shelf stable milk, juice, grain, cereal, pasta, peanut butter, beans, and uh, canned meats, canned fruits, vegetables, some other stuff. Juice, by the way, I'm very anti-juice. I know. Yeah, very anti-juice. A lot of sugar. We all grow up thinking, yeah, drink a big glass of orange juice every day. And it's like the the caloric and and uh, sugar equivalent of, uh, of Coke. Juice? What are you saying? Yeah, I, what are you, you, juicer. Do you ever do the juicer? Oh, a juicer, like homemade juice? Wow, now you're bougie. Look at you, producer Mike. Homemade juicer. Those things always look great. Then you find out you have to clean them. You know, it's like the really fancy coffee machine. You know, I, I like the simple coffee machines. I'm a simple kind of guy. But, uh, yeah, no, look, the, here in New York City, there's a whole bunch of different chains where you go in there and they offer you some version of green juice. And they'll call it, like, Dr. Smoothie's Green Blend of Colon Cleanse or something. And, like, it's $15. And you get to then just go in there and, you know, you drink. And it usually, the better it is for you, the more it tastes like lawn mulch mixed with water. That's the way it's supposed to go, right? So that's how it, 15 bucks. And you think, by the way, come to New York, come visit, folks. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll direct you to some of these places. You can go get your $15, your $15 juice. Um, anyway, juice has got a lot of sugar in it. I'm just saying, if you have like orange juice, apple juice, delicious, don't get me wrong. It's fine once in a while, but just not people think of juice as healthy. I'm always like, mm, no, no, not really, but I digress. So they're going to maybe do this government program where they give people that, that need, uh, assistance in having, in, in getting enough and getting our food on the table uh, are going to be getting these different. It'll be partially the what they're used to, which is a card an EB, and I like I've been in plenty of grocery stores where people are using EBT cards. I understand it's, it's similar to a credit card. I, I get how the process works. And there have been criticisms in the past of should you be able to buy cigarettes with your EBT card? Should you be able to buy? Soda. I'm like never going to get a soda sponsor here, at least a sugar soda. Any of the flavored waters out there that uh, do not have sugar in them would gladly have you be uh, sponsors on the show. But uh, I, I can't I can't get excited about. 24 grams of sugar via high fructose corn syrup, particularly, it's just not really my jam. So anyway, but can you buy that stuff with food stamps? Can you you know, is there any are you allowed to make any put any limits in place for what people are buying for their food. And it becomes very, very uh, tense, very political. People say, oh, you know, look at you. You're now keep in mind, it's a government program. So the government's giving people and it's a welfare program. It is. It's a welfare program. So they're giving people money and they're letting people buy food with the money. Should they be able to direct them to certain kinds of foods and, you know, say that you need to buy, you know, chicken breast and, uh, Broccoli and not Cheetos, for example, which I used to eat when I was a kid, like bags of with Nestle Quick, by the way. It's like I was trying to give myself a coronary in the fifth grade. But these are the things that I like. Cheetos, Nestle's Quick. I eat a whole sleeve of those Pringles. You know, just go go, go Pringles for some reason. You could eat an entire thing of them. Be like, eh, it wasn't that much. Anyway, so this is a big issue now, or there's a lot, a lot of back and forth on it. 
And I just am reminded of, uh, so I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. I think they'll probably back off of it. Or maybe not. You know, we're, we are talking about the Trump administration here. They may, they may take the heat on this. It would, save, it would save the government money, and it would force people who are on, I shouldn't say force, but it would give them some staples. And then I'm sure there'd be some choice within the program, probably, of what the staples would be. But people getting more nutritious food instead of just leaving them to their own devices. I would note that there are some very interesting and um, under-the-radar studies that have been done. I, I find food choice and all this fascinating because it's something we all do, right? You're, you're at the grocery store buying food. I'm buying food. Or you know, some of you are like, no, Buck, I actually grow my own and I go out there and hunt it like a real man. But nonetheless, like most of you are probably going to the grocery store at some point. Um, and and getting food. Uh, But the choices that you make, it becomes very political. As you remember, uh, the primary initiative of Michelle Obama's time as first lady was school lunches, really. That was, or one of the primary initiatives. I think that was the probably best uh, best known one. But you, you hear these stories from liberals about food deserts, for example. And the idea here, for years, was... And this is kind of the payoff to this otherwise kind of rambling story about food stamps and Blue Apron-like programs from the government and everything else. You heard for years that the reason people in low-income neighborhoods, across all backgrounds, but low low income neighborhoods, would not buy healthier food is because of, quote, food deserts. They don't have access to it. It's the, the deli on the corner, which sells the... I'm really beating up on Cheetos and Coca-Cola right now, but anyway, you know, soda, soda pop and soda pop. Now I sound like my grandfather. They still call that. I think they call it pop in the South still, right? Yeah, exactly. It's called pop. Like that is the proper terminology for a Southerner. Uh, anyway, soda pop and, uh, and Cheetos and potato chips and whatever. But if they had access to Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and, you know, free range organic chicken, that is what low-income people would would buy if they were given the uh, option. Well, there was a study that was done back in uh, 2015. It was actually here in New York City. And it, it, it had some pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting end results, I would say. Um, for one, even when the federal government subsidizes healthy food initiatives in low-income neighborhoods encourages the purchasing of food, uh, healthy food in low-income neighborhoods. So, so they, they are literally making it cheaper and more available than it would otherwise be in the market and really going out of the way to say, here's where it, there, are program, there are awareness programs, there are here's where it is in your neighborhood program, and there's the, oh, it's even cheaper than it would be at a normal store because they're subsidizing it. And who wants to guess what they found out? Who wants to guess if the food, if, if when the government gets involved in food deserts for low-income neighborhoods, it changes the buying patterns of the residents? Eh, nope. People, if people want to buy Cheetos, they buy Cheetos. If people want to buy free-range roast chicken, they buy free-range roast chicken. The government, though, trying to educate, subsidize, encourage, coerce, whatever people to eat healthier, does not work. It was an abject failure. And so then what you figure out is that, okay, so the notion of a food desert, it's not that it's not there and people can't afford it and people can't buy it, and particularly talking about low-income neighborhoods. It's that people in the neighborhood don't want to buy it. 
<laughs> that when it's presented to them and it's like, hey, it's cheap, it's here, it's great, it's for you, they're like, I want something else. I, I, I don't want the, you know, skinless chicken breast and, uh, you know, celery stalks. You know, I want what I want and whatever that may be. And if the gov- stuff the government does not deem particularly healthy or, or good for you. So anyway, I just think that's, we talked a lot about food here. What a surprise. Chef Buck comes out sometimes and wants to have a discussion with all of you. Um, Chef Molly's way better than Chef Buck, but that's a discussion for another time. We'll roll into a quick break. We will uh, remember the third hour. We'll talk about what's going on in Syria because it's really crazy stuff, disconcerting and uh, troubling. But no one seems to care in the country right now, which is weird to me, given what's going on. But, you know, they'd rather talk about how the White House has got PR problems right now. Uh, We'll be right back. Well, I got to tell you, I, I wasn't planning on talking about food stamps and uh, the program that the government talked about, but every single line here is lit. It, it got, whoa, people want to talk about this. So let's let's get into some of these calls here. We have uh, Jamie in Florida. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Buck. Uh, I think they need to limit what people can purchase with food stamps. I think the boxes should come in. Same as the old, uh, in, you know, in the olden days, you got cheese and beans from the government. They already have a program called WIC, Women and Infant and Children, WIC, where they tell you weekly what you can get. You can get so, you know, so much milk, so much eggs, so much formula, so much this, that, and the other each week of the month. And you have to get it weekly. And it needs to go to that so that people who are getting assistance are actually using it for food instead of selling it on the street. I give you 50 cents on the dollar to buy their drugs, which they are doing and in large numbers. All right, Jamie, thank you for, thank you for calling in on the food stamp issue. Appreciate it. We got Ron in Florida also wants to talk food stamps. Hey, Ron. Hey, Buck. I've been listening to you since your real news days. Thank you. Uh, kudos, uh, kudos on uh, your progression so far, and many more good things to come. Thank you, sir. Okay, all right. So this is not a new thing. Uh, back in the '60s, uh, I'm a native New Yorker. So back in the '60s, come from a very large family. They had uh, USDA ran the program, and they actually gave out. Uh, you had to go to the distribution center to pick up uh, the your allotment of food for either uh, it was biweekly or or monthly. So you would go to the distribution center. They'd give you that big block of cheese. Have you ever heard the the, the term government cheese? Mm-hmm. That's where it comes from. Mm. They gave you canned meats. They gave you uh, uh, boxes of powdered uh, milk. And they gave you the big cans of peanut butter, the uh, two different kinds of canned meats. So this is uh, this, this program's a retread. So it'd be interesting to see what they come up with. What do you think? Good idea, Ron, or not so good? Um, I... I Listen, I, I, you know what? With the, with all of the uh, iterations of it that are that are currently out there, with the blue aprons and the ones that are doing it uh, on a for-profit basis, uh, I, I think if they uh, if they knuckle down and thought about it, they could get something really good and beneficial out of it, and still and get the cost savings. All right, thank you, Ron. Thank you for calling in from Florida, um, Brent in New Mexico. Brent, we got about a, a minute and change, but go ahead. Hey, Buck, shield tie, man. Shield tie. I just want to tell you, man, this is a serious issue, man. Where I live, they'll take these cards and they'll go in there and 
every dime of it. I'm talking industrial lard, beans, all that stuff. They'll pay for it all on their EBT card, and then they'll get their little food shacks and stuff and make tamales and stuff, and it's just cash in hand. And, I mean, they're turning this thing into a, a straight-up business. And, I mean, they don't spend a dime of it on any Cheetos or nothing, but it's all industrial I would be, stuff. I would be very curious to see what food stamp well, what they have on food stamp fraud and food stamp abuse numbers because I can tell you, Brent, one of the things I learned when I was in the NYPD is they're like, one of just because for, for obvious political reasons, welfare fraud, you have to be really egregious for anyone to actually investigate or care. Uh, it's it's much more rampant than people want to admit or that they even know about. So that's an interesting. Thank you for bringing up uh, another component of this, Shields High. And uh, team, I, I got it. We're going to get into a buck brief coming up here. I got to talk to you about what's going on in Syria. I appreciate all the calls that came in. We still have many more folks calling in lines lit up on on food stamps if maybe we'll come back to that issue tomorrow but i wanted to get into some national security here coming up so uh, stay with me for that in the third hour Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. Right, we, we fight for the truth in a team effort. Roger, Roger. And Buck is back with our next play. All right, here's Buck. You are now entering the Freedom Hut Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. They're clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Reports of a U.S. airstrike that killed Russian nationals in Syria has uh, reports have come in in recent days. Here's what we know. This coming from uh, the uh, this coming from CNN Four Russian nationals and perhaps dozens. I'm sorry, this is from New York Times and perhaps dozens more were killed in fighting between pro-government forces in eastern Syria and members of the United States led coalition fighting the Islamic State, according to Russian and Syrian officials. A Syrian military officer said that about 100 Syrian soldiers had been killed in the fighting um, on February 7th and 8th, but the news about Russian casualties has dribbled out slowly through Russian news organizations and social media. Most of the fatalities were attributed to an airstrike on enemy columns that was called in by American-backed Kurdish soldiers who believed they were under attack. My friends, this is this is very troubling. Um, so here's what we know based on the reporting so far. The individual, the Russians who were killed here, they were moving with Assad, pro-Assad militia forces, essentially, right? Uh, elements of the Assad regime's military forces or paramilitaries in the Deir Ezzor region. Uh, this is in the Euphrates River Valley, eastern uh, eastern Syria. And the column was moving, and the U.S.-backed Kurdish soldiers, uh, they called in for American support, seeing this large movement of Syrian soldiers. But there were some Russians among those Syrians. I believe the Russians were working for a private Russian security company called, I'm assuming, Wagner or Wagner, uh, which has sent hundreds of contractors into Russia to work as, uh, well, auxiliaries for the Assad regime. So this allows Russian special forces, Russian Spetsnaz and others to take part in the Syrian conflict, but to not technically be 
Russian-flagged military, similar to what we've seen with paramilitaries operating in eastern Ukraine and part of the separatist movements there. But in this case, you had a large U.S. airstrike that killed pro-Assad regime forces, killed a handful of Russians. The Russians are so far keeping a relatively low profile about this. Um, But most of the casualties were from a pro-regime Christian militia. So not technically Syrian Assad soldiers, Syria's. Assad regime soldiers, but this Christian militia. Look, I mean, this is you got so many different pieces and forces and movements and everything going on in Syria right now because we've really gone into a new phase. We're no longer in the primarily anti-ISIS campaign of the Syrian civil war. That has been won by this administration. We are now in a second Syrian civil war or the the war the wars within the Syrian civil war are coming to the surface. And it's dizzying when you look at all the different factions and rivalries and what's going on in, in the country. And I, I'm surprised, given that we have U.S. troops in Syria, we have U.S. troops on the front lines. In fact, we've been worried in recent weeks that because of Turkish military action in the north of Syria across the border, against U.S.-backed Kurdish forces, Syrian Kurdish forces, that we could have the Turks essentially shelling or dropping bombs on our guys. And Turkey's a NATO ally, and they're going to be, now that hasn't happened, but that was a a very real concern. And they have dropped bombs in areas where, and, and they have attacked in places where we have allies on the ground in Syria, which is very troublesome for us. Well, what are the Turks think that they're they're doing by by engaging in such shall we say unhelpful conduct uh but this group this christian militia that we hit with an airstrike they call themselves the isis hunters which is interesting they they are part of this uh, assad regime branding effort to be all about fighting against the terrorists and this is complicated because the assad regime is in fact, fighting against terrorists, just also a lot more than terrorists and bombing a lot of innocent women and children and civilians in the process. Assad is using the very real fight against the Islamic State and the al-Qaeda element in Syria as a cover with his own side for whatever brutality, chemical weapons attacks and everything else that's been going on in the country. Uh, he's just saying it's either, you know, it's either me or, or you can have those crazy jihadists running the country. So. His own people, Assad's people that are still inside of Assad-controlled territory, give him a much greater leeway than they otherwise would. But inside of this second Syrian civil war, um, you have a whole bunch of different conflicts that are that are playing out. So, for example, you've got the problem between American-backed Kurdish fighters and Turkey. You have the problem of Iran-Syrian-Israeli uh, conflict that, that is looking more and more realistic all the time, considering that the Iranians were just flying a drone from Syria into Israel. I mean, they're using Syria. Iran is using Syria as a launch pad and a forward operating base to look at what's going on in Israel and, and who knows what else. Keep in mind that Iranian backed militia Hezbollah in Lebanon 
has been fine. You know, they, there have been conflicts between Israel and, and Hezbollah stretching back for decades. Most recently in 2006, Israeli tank columns went up into southern Lebanon. There's, there's, there's all kinds of problems there. So now it might be Syria as well could be a, a front of Israeli military tension. So that's complicated. And then we also just have what happens with the Assad regime. And we say that we want Assad to go. We say that we would like the Assad regime to be gone, but who's going to take its place? And how would that work? We don't really have uh, much in the way of a game plan here, folks. We have defeated the Islamic State, but Syria is a devastated mess. And we have, as I've been saying, U.S. troops there, also U.S. allies on the ground there that I think we have some obligation to for their uh, fighting alongside our guys and taking the fight to the Islamic State. So we can't just entirely write them off, right? We've got to do something about that. And this is a problem that, you know, the administration is smart not to get too deep into the Syrian conflict and, and not to decide that we're going to remake or rebuild this country. That's that's a recipe for disaster. But when you have Russian troops and or Russian paramilitaries and American airstrikes mixing, this is this is combustible. And while the Russians publicly may be saying because they don't this here's the weird the, the thing that you got to also remember is that Putin doesn't want his own people to know that Russians are dying in Ukraine and Syria. It also causes diplomatic headaches for him. So that's why using these paramilitaries is a tool for them. They they say that they're just on two Russian bases in Syria officially, uh, an air base and a naval base, naval base at Tartus. Uh, but they're much more involved than that. They've got ground troops that are right alongside the front lines trying to take back territory for the Assad regime. And the Russians may say, oh, sure, those weren't really our guys, so we'll just move on from this. But the fact of the matter is that they may uh, they may try to get even with us in some way. This is how the game, unfortunately, is played, right? The Russians can decide to make things very uncomfortable for us, but in a way that we couldn't openly retaliate against them. And that's how all of a sudden you could find we could find ourselves losing a whole bunch of our guys in Syria. So uh, you've got to pay very close attention to this. And there's also just we're going to talk to uh, David Ifun here in a moment about what's going on in, in Israel. There's a lot of stuff in the security realm right now. Um, but there was a an Iranian copy of the Lockheed Martin RQ-170 Sentinel drone. Remember, that one, that went down in December 2011 in Iran. The Iranians say they have reverse engineered it. And the Israeli military is saying that a knockoff of our Sentinel drone was sent by Iran via Syria into Israeli airspace. And the Israelis had to blow it out of the sky. This is this is tense. This is tense stuff. Uh, this is something that should be getting a lot more attention in the media than it has been. So we're going to uh, get into some of the details on the Israeli side of the equation here with uh, David Efun. In and we're also going to talk about Anglo-American law. That'll be coming up. So uh, stay with me. All right, everybody. So we've been discussing a lot of national security today on the show. There's a lot going on, uh, especially in the Mideast, East, and it's involving our close ally, Israel. I've got my friend David Efun on the phone right now with us. He is the editor-in-chief of the Algeminer, uh, which is a newspaper you should all become familiar with. David, great to have you back. Always a pleasure, bud. So uh, first we've got Netanyahu, the prime minister. 
saying the following. I've been warning for some time about the dangers of uh, Iran's military entrenchment in Syria. Iran seeks to use uh, Syrian territory to attack Israel for its professed goal of destroying Israel. Israel holds Iran and its Syrian host responsible for today's aggression. We will continue to do whatever is necessary to protect our sovereignty and our security. So, David, the prime minister speaking after a drone, apparently an Iranian drone, according to Israeli Defense Forces spokesman, an Iranian drone based on the uh, the Sentinel drone that was, well, lost to the Iranians some years ago, which is a stealth drone meant for uh, reconnaissance, had to be shot down over Israel proper. What, what What's happening here? Well, look, just to give you a sense of the context, Israeli leaders and military leaders in particular have been saying for quite a while that 80% of the threats facing the country in one way or another are emanating from Iran. And the Iranian threat takes on a few different forms. The most famous, obviously, is the nuclear threat, which is something that uh, has made headlines over the past couple of years. But the biggest, I think, that's emerging, that's really taking a lot of Israel's attention right now, is that the Iranians have effectively taken advantage of the vacuum that's been left by the infighting in Syria and Iraq and, frankly, uh, American abdication from the arena and started to set up, establish military strongholds in the region. Now, what obviously, Iraq is a completely separate subject, but there's a lot going on there that's really disturbing. Uh, the problem that we've been discussing now is Syria, which is right on Israel's border. So typically for the last number of years, this has been what the Israelis have called a quiet border. They've got Hamas in Gaza, they've got the Sinai, they've got Hezbollah in Lebanon. Syria has been a quiet border. The concern right now is that the Iranians have really uh, established a very significant military uh, foothold in another one of their borders, one that's typically been quiet, and will use that to launch uh, attacks, reconnaissance, surveillance of Israel and Israeli targets. And what we saw bursting out into the open was really uh, the product of this build-up over a number of months where one of the players, the Iranians, slips up. They let one of their drones cross into an Israeli airspace. Israel, of course, had to respond hard, fast, and sharp. And the rest is, is what everybody's been seeing in the headlines. This is really concerning, David. I mean, for, for everybody listening, we have a situation here where you have essentially the Iranian state in part colonizing, uh, well, Iraq and Syria. I mean, turning them into not just proxy battlegrounds, but also forward operating bases for Iranian military power. And in the case of, of Israel, Iranian military power that's right next door. I mean, this we're talking about, I mean, as you well know, you can see into the Golan Heights from Israel. I mean, this is not... Uh... I mean, that that's exactly right. And frankly, this is a playbook that we've seen enacted in Lebanon, the south of Lebanon. I mean, in, in many ways, Iran effectively controls the country and the country's military. I mean, they, they take offense when you put things like that. But effectively, that is the case. And it's a playbook that they've now, uh, that's been immensely successful in Lebanon. And they've now... Uh, mirrored it in multiple other arenas. They're doing that in Iraq, they're doing it in Syria, they're trying to do it in Yemen, and uh, wh- wherever, frankly, wherever they, fi- they find an opportunity, wherever they see an opportunity, wherever they see a vacuum, 
Iran is right there, and they're not they're not afraid to put soldiers on the ground to put to invest resources uh, and and take advantage of of uh, the lack of appetite from from many uh, of the of the Western allies uh, to stick to stick to it in the long run, and they've been immensely successful. And it's uh, unfortunate, obviously, for Israel, where you know they have limited resources. They're a country under siege, and every quiet border they can take, they desperately need. And now it looks like they've just lost another one. We're speaking to David Efun, who's the editor in chief of the Algaminer. The Algaminer is the fastest growing uh, Jewish newspaper in America. Check it out, algaminer.com. Uh, David, let's just switch gears for a second. We started with a soundbite from Prime Minister Netanyahu. I'm reading today that uh, police in Israel are recommending criminal charges against the current prime minister. Looks like America's not the only place where politics gets uh, gets really rough. What's going on here? Well, this is something that's been uh, baking for, for, for quite some time. There have been these uh, investigations into the prime minister's personal dealings. Um, now, it, it, it is complicated. Uh, and there are lots of different moving parts. But effectively, the accusation is that the prime minister and his family have received over a number of years certain lavish gifts, primarily cigars and champagne from various uh, benefactors, and that in exchange, Netanyahu has helped them out of certain bits and pieces that they needed, including U.S. visas and, and, and other things. Uh, there's also a second charge. In fact, there, there, there were at least four investigations, but there are only two that culminated in a recommendation for indictment for, by the police. Uh, the second was a, was a deal that he uh, had made with a or, or, or uh, discussed, because the deal wasn't actually enacted, but it was a deal that was discussed uh, with a newspaper publisher where he said that he would, where, where he would take some action to weaken one of the newspaper's competitors in exchange for more favorable coverage. That was something that was discussed and was never enacted. Now, now the way it works in Israel, first of all, is that the police can recommend an indictment, but the, the final decision is only made by the attorney general. So this brief will now sit in the attorney general's office for quite some time. Obviously, it's an incredibly delicate Situation: You have a democratically elected leader, and you have charges that are made against him. But you know, by by going ahead and filing those charges, you know, you're you're messing with the democratic process. So it's it's. I would not want to be the attorney general right now. It's a huge weight on his shoulders to make the right decision and to make the right call. And uh, yeah, for the first time in a while, Jeff Sessions may be saying, "Wow, that guy's got a tough job." (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I have to tell you, I mean, you know, just, just from, from where I sit, and obviously we haven't seen the full picture yet, and sometimes, you know, they always say where there's smoke, there's, there's fire. But what they're accusing him of, effectively taking about a, a million shekels in gifts, which is about 200 or so thousand dollars, uh, it does seem like, and this is over the course of a number of years, it does seem like a very small amount to to go down for. I mean, if, if you're talking about corruption on the... On that level, you know, the level of, of a head of state, you know, you want to think that it involves many, many millions of dollars, right? To have a prime minister who served for, you know, the longest serving Israeli prime minister for more than a decade, he's in his fourth term, he's uh, shepherded the country through some very, very trying times, 
I would say it would be a very unfortunate thing for him to go down over over something that's really so stupid. Yeah, I mean, you're telling me uh, champagne it's, it's and cigars. It's it seems pretty it seems pretty flimsy. Uh, but David, we we got to leave it there for right now. Please come back when we have updates on this story. And thank you as always for joining us, David Afoon, editor in chief of the Algaminer, Algaminer dot com. Everybody, David, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, bro. All right, team, we're going to roll into a break. We come back. We've got a whole lot more show for you, so don't go anywhere. And uh, stay with me. Since our founding, the independently elected sheriff has been the people's protector uh, who keeps law enforcement close to and accountable to people through the elective process. The office of sheriff is a critical part of of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. We must never erode this historic office. Now, that was Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and he was uh, speaking earlier today at the National Sheriff's Association on, I'm sorry, this is earlier this week, on combating the opioid epidemic. This was yesterday. And that, that seems like a pretty non-controversial statement, right? He's just saying that sheriffs have a longstanding you know, important role in, in our history. And and he's remember, he's speaking to the National Sheriff's Association. So one would understand why he would want to mention sheriffs. Uh, but here's the problem. So they say he mentioned the Anglo-American tradition of law enforcement. Wait a second. I don't I don't understand. Why would he say such a thing? People got very upset over this. They immediately went into this place of, oh, that's some kind of a white nationalist dog whistle. Now, ignorance knows no bounds on the left. We are quite aware of that. But this is really just going too far. You know, and I, I, I can't I can't abide this. The buck cannot abide. This is not going to fly. And other press outlets were going along because I'm going to explain. And I know all of you listening already know the the Anglo-Saxon tradition of law enforcement speaking about sheriffs is actually a is speaking directly to English common law, which is a it's the same thing. Common law, the Anglo-Saxon tradition of law, our laws, the basis of our laws. I know natural law comes from God, but I mean, the, the structure of our laws comes from common law in England and hundreds of years of it. Right. Really stretching all the way back to the Magna Carta, actually. So uh, you can rock it all the way back to the 13th century if you want. But it's a completely non-controversial phrase if you understand what it means. But here's the problem, folks. A lot of people out there, including journalists. I am a journalist. I do not like to know things. I just like to write things and get outraged. Uh, A lot of journalists out there are at least putting or you know adding some fuel to the fire here i mean you've got the associated press for example with this tweet earlier today this is from their official ap associated press account ag sessions remark about the anglo-american heritage of law enforcement some see or some hear a racialized dog whistle those people are called ignorant because they do not understand something there's not a debate here. There's not a discussion. This isn't a dog whistle issue. This would be like saying, you know, uh, Buck Sexton is born in New York City. That is just a statement of fact. People can pretend that that is 
a political statement, a racial statement or whatever, and they're just being imbeciles. There's no racial dog whistle involved in literally stating a fact of history and and not doing it in any way where he's, he wasn't even trying to make a political statement or anything. He's just saying, yeah, the Anglo-American tradition of law enforcement, as I'm sure many of you know, the whole the term itself, sheriff, comes from a Shire Reeve. And this is a term we take from the United Kingdom. This is not something that uh, that just came from, you know, from Walker, Texas Ranger or something. Well, I guess that would be a ranger. But you know what I mean? This is not something that we've just conjured up here in the American tradition. I was just thinking about Texas Ranger the other day for no for no apparent reason. Um, but that's with the whole notion of a Shire Reeve, which is where we get the, the term sheriff, is Anglo-Saxon. Comes from England. And so when he says our Anglo-Saxon tradition of law to a sheriff's association, not only is he speaking specifically to sheriffs, but he's just speaking about what is, in fact, our tradition of law. You know, this is like saying that that the that Great Britain was the colon or the England was the colonizer of the United States. The English, they colonized the United States. That is true. That's a true statement. You can say that's racist or that doesn't that's not inclusive or something else, but it's just a fact. So if people want to play this game now, we can't let them. Um, this is and and I would note it's not just some trolls, some Twitter troll idiots out there that are saying this is a problem. I read to you from the Associated Press. They're saying some believe it's a dog whistle, but you got a sitting U.S. senator from Hawaii wrote the following today. Do you know anyone who says Anglo-American heritage in a sentence? What could possibly be the purpose of saying that other than to pit Americans against each other? For the chief law enforcement officer to use a dog whistle like that is appalling. Best no vote I ever cast. Brian Schatz? That's his name. I think. I mean, I'm right? I mean, I don't think I'm mispronouncing it. Let me say it again. Brian Schatz? is a moron. That is an idiotic statement. It's unfair to Attorney General Sessions, and this is just parading his ignorance. This is walking around saying, I hated that book, and I'm illiterate. That's what he's doing. He has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, Matty Iglesias over at, uh, he's one of those left-wing writers, I forget where he writes. Sessions, this is what what he wrote. Sessions could have avoided a lot of trouble this morning by either saying common law instead of Anglo-American, or not having a long record in public life as a racist. No, no, sorry, Iglesias. It it doesn't work that way. Common law and Anglo-American law are interchangeably used terms. Right? These are not, they do not mean different things, they mean the same thing. And then just saying, well, because we don't, what he's really saying, at least there's some honesty in this, is because Sessions is a, quote, racist, even though what he said isn't racist, we're all going to pretend it's racist. Sitting U.S. Senator, uh, who is, uh, what's her, from the, the show with the three witches and their, Shannon Doherty is one of them. I just watched the 902 and what's the, you know, uh, Charmed? I know. Yeah, I've saw, I saw it. Alyssa, thank you, Alyssa Milano. She immediately tweeted out in response to Sessions' completely uncontroversial statement that he must be fired right away and... People who know anything 
went absolutely nuts. Um, other, I mean, blue. Ch- oh, Linda Sarsour, she she got up on this too. Uh, your attorney general said this: the office of a sheriff is a critical part of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. She she quotes him because she thinks that's like a bad thing. Like I said, this is the equivalent of saying that the the English uh, fought America in the Revolutionary War. You can make it controversial if you're an idiot. Otherwise, it's just a thing that happened that is true. So anyway, Anglo-American, Shire Reeve, Sheriff, we like to know things here, but other people don't. We'll be back with uh, a little bit of an anecdote from my day and also some of your thoughts via roll call. Stay with me. I like to think of this as an injustice league of anti-Trumpers. These are all people that had key access at important points in the entire Russia-Trump collusion narrative and also have an anti-Trump animus. They, they don't like Donald Trump. And when you're talking about some of these folks, like, for example, Christopher Steele, fine. He is a gun for hire. He's essentially a glorified private investigator in this context. But he has been involved at every step of the way of manufacturing this Russia collusion narrative. All right, so uh, as we close up the show here, I got to say that was a that was a very strong opening I had there on Fox and Friends this morning. All was going according to plan. I even coined a phrase that I think you'll be hearing more of: the Injustice League of Anti-Trumpers. I'm proud of myself. I came up with that at five something in the morning. Those of you who have been with me, those who have been uh, OSS Original Saturday Squad in particular, tend to know that I am. The opposite of a morning person. I am one of these people who can actually have a conversation really early in the morning that I basically entirely forget. Um, I sometimes have to stop myself from like walking out of my apartment just wearing a sweatshirt and boxers and like flip flops because, you know, you need pants. Uh, I'm just not a morning person. I I can kind of rev up for a second early on, but, you know, so like I can do it. But then afterwards. It's a bit like those of you who have seen old school when Will Ferrell has to debate and and he debates uh, the raging Cajun James Carville in old school. And then right after he finishes, he kind of like melts down and, and, and can't really speak anymore. That's how I am in the morning. Right. I can, I can do it for a few minutes and then I'm just like, Argh! I just fall down and can't really handle it anymore. Um, and it also means that occasionally I show up and um, maybe have tie askew or something like that. Well, today, during my Fox and Friends segment, and look, it's important, right? If you're going to be in the TV business, you got to remember, stay humble because you will be humbled. You know, Things will happen and you'll say, yeah. So I had, and if you go and you see the clip, and it's on the Fox and Friends account, on the Twitter account, so you can see it. Um, it's on Facebook, too. So it's out there. Um, I somehow, and I, I can only take so much credit for this, because I don't know even how one would do this. But everything looked fine with the swoop, which is my affectionate term for my own hair, which is probably weird that I refer to my hair almost as though it's an inanimate object or in the third person. But in the era of Trump, I feel like hair has taken on a whole new personification, right? Trump has a swoop. I have a swoop. Buck swoop. Trump swoop. You know, tomato, tomato. And somehow, as I was doing my segment... And no one thought to maybe just say, hey, Buck, you know, you got a little thing going on there. I developed what I could only call a shark fin in the back of my head. So it's now if it were in the front, it might look a bit like a faux hawk. Like it might have looked a little cool. 
but the shark fin has not yet caught on with the cool kids. Imagine like a retractable mohawk that only comes out of the very back of my head. And that's why it, it was very it was shark fin like, and maybe that makes it sound much cooler than it was. But I just bring it up because one, it's just a reminder of, you know, stuff happens in TV. And and also two, sure enough, despite the audio in that segment, I love that they they carry like the Fox TV show on different radio stations sometimes because uh, or on different radio stations, because at least people heard the the audio was great. Right. Kill me and I. I really like Brian. We had a, we had a really good back and forth in this segment. It was a strong segment. But all I saw in the commentary afterwards, no one was like, wow, Injustice League. That's a really cool phrase you've just coined. Like, oh, that's a really you know, you're really bringing some things together here. I liked your insight about former CIA director Brennan as a CIA guy. You've got a lot to offer on this. Oh, no. They're all like, nice shark fin, jerk. You look like you look like uh, somebody woke up and said, hey, I want to look like a porcupine. You know, I mean, it's some of them are funnier than others. At least the funny ones I'll kind of go with. But it's just a reminder that the problem with going on TV, one of the reasons why I love radio so much is it is ju- there's a purity to this. Sure, maybe I'll sneeze sometimes or you'll hear some off mic banter or something, but more or less. I can sit here in sweats. No one cares. I'm doing the show and the content is the show, right? The connection, the conversation between me and you when you're doing TV. If, you know, let's just say you miss a patch shaving because maybe that's happened to me before and not like a big patch, but like a little one in HD, that stuff can show up and you just get ripped. I mean, people are just, you know, oh, don't you don't own a mirror doofus. Hey, do you even lift, bro? I mean, that's kind of the stuff that you end up getting thrown at you. And uh, it was it was a, a reminder today that, uh, sure enough, the shark fin haircut is not yet cool, is not yet uh, in style. So, you know, it happens. It was a good segment, though. It was a good segment. I, wanna play, I played the best part for you, too, the Injustice League. wanted to roll with that a little bit. So, with that... I want to do a little roll call now. We got some time for a roll call. Not a lot, but a few minutes here to do it. Oh, yeah. Team Shark Buck, roll call. it's time for roll call. So, first up here, we have David, who made a request yesterday, which producer Mike made sure I would not forget. David with the following. Hey, Buck, I am OSS. So is my wife. Her name is Maria. We remember watching you back on The Blaze way back in the day. February 13th, today is our wedding anniversary. How about a shout out? This comes from Doc David. And uh, that's a shout out, my friend. Happy 30th anniversary to you and the wonderful Maria. Thank you for being with me OSS style since The Blaze days. And I hope you have another 30 or 40 or 50 you know, however many wonderful. I don't know how old you guys are, so let's assume it's going to be 50. Another 50 wonderful years of marital bliss ahead of you. So thank you so much and, uh, and congratulations, guys. All right. Next up here. Ooh, we got a lot of messages today. Uh, I mean, I, it's always a. It's always a uh, reminder here that I, I have both the the best listeners in radio, the wittiest and the smartest listeners in radio when I read through the messages. Some of them would be great, but they're not exactly uh, not, not safe for radio, but they're still really funny. Here we go, though. This one is Adam writes, Buck, love the show. Love Shields High. Don't stress about getting the next episode out. Let it be a labor of love and not a burden. 
Hopefully you see our eagerness for the next installment as an indicator of how good they are. I plan to incorporate them when I start homeschooling my kids next year. Well, Adam, thank you so much. And that's exactly my approach. I'm going to get them done as I can. The great thing about them is there's no, yeah, these battles happened like, you know, six, 700 years ago. But, you know, you start getting into the, you get, getting into the math here. It's been a little while, so I don't think we're going to, they're not going to, they're not going to go stale. Uh, when I'm talking about what happened in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries in the Mediterranean basin, Christian and Muslim forces facing off for control of the world. I always think it's so interesting, too, that they don't really teach people, and I mentioned this on our Columbus Day segment when we talked about the history of Columbus Day, they don't teach people that one of the one of the main reasons that they were looking for a, a faster route to the Indies, ever, ever, everyone assumes, oh, a, a faster route to, to the Indies and to, to India, you know, it just it's uh, because it takes a long time. There's obviously no Suez Canal. And it takes a long time to go around the uh, southern tip of Africa, which is true. But they didn't know how far away it was the other direction. One of the reasons they had to find a faster route or a different route was that the overland route had to go through the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate. And that was a big problem if you were a European power at the time. In 1492, the Ottomans were able to take on any of the European Christian powers militarily and and then some. So the notion that you're just they were just going to set up essentially a giant taxation collection waypoint. Anyone that tried to go to the east and along the old trade routes that have been there for centuries, anyone who tried to pass through Ottoman territory, there was no choice but to pass through Ottoman territory. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be paying all kinds of. Taxes, man. A lot of, a lot of problems. Taxes cause a lot of problems. Hey, that's, a, that's a discussion we'll get into again uh, another time. Uh-oh, now we got a different take on this. Kevin writes, what happened to Shields High? It's been two weeks. <laughs> Thanks for the awesome podcast. But really, where is it? Well, Kevin, I appreciate it, man. I'm on it. I'm on it. I promise it's, it's coming soon. I have, uh, I have not forgotten that, sure enough, we, we do need to get to some Shields High in the near in the near future. So uh, it's happening. It's happening. Um, I'm hoping this Monday. It really just depends on how social I feel like being this weekend with uh, Miss Molly. So with that, I got to close up the Freedom Hut for the night, my friends. Actually, going to go hang out with Miss Molly and Miss Molly's mom. So Miss Molly and Mrs. Molly. That's going to be fun. Probably going to watch some Bravo. Probably, probably going to drink something with a little bit of bubble in it. You know, why not? Sounds like a good time to me. With that in mind, my friends, tomorrow night, excited to join you here in the Freedom Hut. As always, Shields High.